This is episode 209 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Michael Nesmith Will Remember You. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the mostly self-explanatory show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. This show is a reboot of Dear Discreet Guide, which ended with 202 episodes at the end of year 2020. So thank you for joining us in the new show. I'm excited to see where this new adventure will take us. All right, boys and girls, it's a cloudy, almost rainy day here in the studio. We've got the fire burning. We've got Bill with us. And today we're going to talk about Michael Nesmith, who sadly passed away uh, last week. And conversations about Michael Nesmith often go like this. Did you know Michael Nesmith's mother invented liquid paper? Who's Michael Nesmith? He's the monkey in the wool cap. Oh, that was kind of what (laughs) Michael Nesmith was sometimes condemned to was being the monkey in the wool cap. But he had a long, rich life full of all kinds of productivity, even after the monkeys. And so we're going to talk about that in depth today. His name, his full name was Robert Michael Nesmith. He was born in 1942, and he died on December 10th of this year, 2021, at age 78. He was most famous as a member of the Monkees, the Monkey in the Wool Cap, a band that was fabricated for TV and was active from 1966 to 1968. He wrote Different Drum, which was uh, Linda Ronstadt's first hit, and she made that famous in 1967. He went on to have a solo career as a singer-songwriter and helped invent the music video by creating a TV program called Pop Clips on Nickelodeon. He also released an hour-long video of songs called Elephant Parts, which won a Grammy in 1981. He was also part of some interesting organizations that we'll talk about. Some factoids about the monkeys. It was created in 1965 as a sitcom by Bob Raffleson. That name is familiar to you film buffs out there. It's because it should be. He was the director of Five Easy Pieces, Last Picture Show, Easy Rider, and many more. And also Bert Schneider. So they created this band and this TV show as kind of an imaginary version of the Beatles. And it was inspired by the Beatles movies. It consisted of Mickey Dolenz, Michael Nesmith, Peter Tork, and the English singer-actor Davy Jones, who had gotten famous by then for portraying the Artful Dodger in Oliver on Broadway. So he was actually a a real live actor at the time. But uh, Bob and Bert ran an ad that said, Madness! 
rock and roll musicians slash singers for acting roles in new TV series, running parts for four insane boys ages 17 to 21, want spirited Ben Franks types. <laughs> As an aside, Raffleson originally had the idea of just full on using the Love and Spoonful for their TV show, which could have been pretty interesting if if that had worked out where they'd actually taken a, a real live band for their TV show. But the Love and Spoonful was busy. And so the rest is history. So Michael Nesmith at that time was in L.A. kind of fooling around with playing and singing and releasing music. He was 23 at that time, so older than what they were looking for, but they, I guess they overlooked that. The whole thing with the monkeys was kind of a mess. The music supervisor was Don Kirshner, and he wasn't happy with the, you know, fairly amateurish musicians uh, that responded and were selected from this ad. So in the background, he was using professional songwriters and studio musicians to create the music. As you can imagine, that caused some hard feelings amongst the monkeys. And then, um, you know, eventually some outrage with the public where some people were calling them the prefab for and a quote unquote disgrace. When the first album came out and it presented the monkeys as though they really were a bona fide rock band, uh, Nesmith really objected, or so he says uh, now in retrospect. He said, you know, you've crossed a line. You're duping the public. They know we're not a rock and roll band that somehow got their own show. It's a show about a rock and roll band. And he said, it's just beyond the pale. So, you know, that this sort of whole question about the identity of the band was problematic. And then even assigning the instruments was kind of a mess Nobody played the drums, so they foisted that off on Mickey Dolenz, who who actually played guitar. And Davy Jones could have played drums because he'd been trained to do that, but he's super short, so they didn't want to put him in the back for optics. So they and they wanted him out front because he was kind of the professional actor. And then I don't know why they decided to put Nesmith on guitar and Torque on bass, even though. Torque was really, I mean, most people acknowledge he was the better guitarist at that time. And Nesmith had, in fact, trained on bass. So, you know, they weren't particularly interested in producing music from this these particular four individuals. In the, in the early days, they still sang on the albums or on the songs, but everything was already recorded for them. They were just told to go in the studio and they got excited. We're going to go in and do some music. and but here's the lyrics you guys are going to sing. And it was like, well, uh, we can play stuff. And it was yeah, kinda, right. <laughs> but well, not all of them, but some of them could play stuff. And it was kind of like, we could feel like you're, we're, we're, we're kind of lying to the people that we, that we're not really doing everything, but they were able to sing. And they, I think they held up pretty well with their, with their singing abilities. I think um, Don Kirshner and trying to be the best he could do for them kind of overproduced it in a way that, just worked for them in a way. I mean, it worked in the early early songs, and those songs are some of the biggest hits for them. Although they did write some good songs themselves as they got later on. And um, they had all kinds of great songwriters writing for them on the Kirshner team. Neil Diamond, Carol King, Jerry Goffin, Voice and Heart. And they had some great musicians playing on the records. I mean, much better than they could ever have played with uh, 
James Burton, Glenn Campbell. I mean, all kinds of just great studio musicians. But still, they felt like, you know, we we want to show people what we can do. We don't want to just be kind of a pretending. Mm-hmm. So I think they were trying hard to make it successful as a TV show. And I think music was secondary. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they really were actors. But I don't yes. think they they'd been hired as actors, but I don't think they realized that. <laughs> but, you know, your your point is really well taken because there were so many things that were kind of messed up, but it ultimately would sometimes work in their favor. I mean, there's no doubt that they were stupendously successful and some of the music was great. So out of all this messiness and, you know, kind of who's on first, what's on second, you know, some really good stuff came out of it because they were wildly popular. People loved them. Yeah, I think people didn't realize it wasn't them playing at first. And and it might not have mattered right away. It was right. when they, it was yeah. when they started to be. I mean, there was, you could tell a lot of times they were pretending on the screen when they were doing the songs on the TV show. But if you're on stage and they really wanted to do some touring, I believe the studios really didn't want to have them be doing live shows because they weren't all talented musicians. They wanted to just have them on TV where they could control it more and just do the recording voices. But so I I believe what happened at one point is they actually put them on, they said, we can do a show. We'll we'll give you a show to do. And they sent them to Hawaii to do a show figuring, well, (laughs) if if it it fails, no one's really going to hear about it. It's in Hawaii. And that's before the internet and all that stuff. That's Uh instant stuff you hear about. But back then they could control media more. They went out there and they, and the audience, of course, went nuts for them because it's the monkeys. It doesn't yeah. matter what they're singing. You really, yeah. they really shook up the music industry a little bit because now they realized they really had to do more with the actual concert sound type thing. It was definitely a lot of, a lot of trial and error and a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of fights. Yeah. And like I say, you know, some things that were, that were not considered a feature at first really kind of helped them. Like one of them was that, they would spend essentially the entire day on set while, you know, these setups for the set were taking place. And so they ended up spending a lot of time playing on video, right? They just fool around. The cameras are there. Just turn them on. We're all musicians. Let's just fool around. And so in a way, you know, this idea of the music video, you know, could have started from then because they were just playing so much on film, right? So again, you know, the kind of these seeds are planted for what will come later, certainly for Michael Nesmith as, you know, as being pretty innovative in that idea of the music video. So sometimes things just work out, right? Of course. So to continue our story here, yeah, the musicians did start to rebel, at least the two quote unquote musicians, Michael Nesmith and Peter Tork did. And Nesmith uh, has, he's talked a lot about this kind of identity crisis inside the monkeys and, and probably for himself personally. So here's a quote from him. We were confused, especially me, but all of us shared the desire to play the songs we were singing. We were also kids with our own taste in music and were happier performing songs we liked and or wrote than songs that were handed to us. So the story goes that Kirshner was incensed by their rebelliousness. Yeah, get used to working with 20-year-olds and felt that they had a, quote, modicum of talent, 
Yeah, that might not have gone over too well. <laughs> the showdown came when Kirshner released the second Monkeys album without the band even knowing. They weren't consulted on the song selection. And the cover was just shots of them that they had taken when they were doing a JCPenney clothing advertisement. Hmm. So according to legend, there was a big blowout fight. And uh, this is where uh, allegedly Nesmith put his fist through the wall. Uh, but, you know, things did turn their direction. Kirshner was dismissed the following month. And then the band actually did take over like a real band. So, yeah, talk about existential crisis. The funny part to me was Kirshner then went on to make another TV uh, series about a band called Archie's in which the band members were actually re represented by animation. So no way that they could rebel. <laughs> it's also funny to me just when I read about that period of history. I mean, there were just so many things that were sort of odd, like that they had Jimi Hendrix open up for them in 1967. Can you imagine that? Well, I think that came about from, um, I think it was, Peter Tork that was really an ob of Jimi Hendrix and they became friends and he agreed that he would tour with them a little bit but it wasn't very good for either party mm -hmm. because Monkeys fans may not be actually um, Jimi Hendrix fans it's a whole different type of music right? and people were booing at Hendrix and yelling at you would think that they would just be so a nah but that wasn't the case they were there for the pop music not, they weren't there yeah. for long guitar jams right Hendrix was awesome, but it wasn't his audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, but it is, the, it is probably the oddest double bill ever. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem very weird in retrospect. <laughs> and yeah. apparently Jimi Hendrix was not that enamored with the monkeys either. So he said some kind of disparaging things about them. <laughs> Just yeah, a weird I, time. I, I think it might have been more about the fans than the monkeys, because maybe monkeys were a little out of touch as far as what I mean, if you like music a lot, you like to see different types of things. And they were trying uh -huh. to expand maybe the, the fans' minds a little bit. Oh, well, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll turn them on to this guy. And yeah, if they were ready to see one thing, you're not always ready to see something else. If, you see it, if you're going to see an artist perform and they don't perform any hits at all or anything that you know, it's kind of a letdown. And mm -hmm. if a warm-up band, they're always really hard to... I mean, I saw the Pretenders warm up for the who ones and that was a pretty good double bill mm -hmm. but the pretenders weren't getting any respect it was their first first time out touring with with mm -hmm. people and people were just like not giving them any kind of love it was just like people yelling and talking and it's like yeah but you know warrant bands really do get a a tough a tough time out there they really do and yeah it's really unfortunate because I think it's almost it's like having a substitute teacher. It just becomes an opportunity to torture somebody. And that's really unfortunate because, you know, most of the big bands started out as warm up bands. And so, yeah, it kind of behooves us to open our ears and listen to the warm up bands because we might. Yeah, we might learn something. But, yeah, unfortunately, people can turn a little mean when they're waiting. And and warm-up bands, sometimes, if they're re really doing pretty well and they're getting better response than the main band or, or equal response, there's been stories of the mixing board and stuff not mixing them right so they don't sound as good on, this, on the stage because they don't want to have somebody 
have the main band come out and not be as good or better than the warm-up band. Yeah. So sometimes there's, you know, things that go on there too. But I have a feeling Hendrix just put on a show that he thought he wanted to do. And yeah, I think at one point, Jimi Hendrix did do a monkey song, though. I don't know if it was a joke or he really wanted to show what he could do with it. But in any case, it's out there. if People want to look for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the monkeys were short-lived, but super popular. Uh, they had two albums. Uh, their movie Head was kind of a, a flop, and that came toward the end, and then they officially disbanded in 1970. But over the next 30 years, they had several reunion tours, another TV special, and four more albums. So Jones and Tork died in 2012 and 2019, respectively, and then Dolan's and Nesmith did a farewell tour in 2021, which ended actually just last month. Nesmith was just at the Greek Theater in L.A. in November. They sold 75 million records. They had huge hits. Last train to Clarksville. Take the last train to Clarksville. I'm a believer. Pleasant Valley Sunday. And then Daydream Believer, which was the one that I remember the best. But it did all end kind of in tears. Uh, In 1968, they were canceled and Raffleson directed them in this feature film, Head, which must be one of the strangest movies of all time. Nesmith said they had all gone a little crazy by then and everyone was just using the monkeys to push their own career. It's almost like they all just decided to kill the monkeys. And Raffleson said, I grooved on those four in very... Uh, special ways, while at the same time thinking they had absolutely no talent. <laughs> Yikes. Everybody is so mixed up about this whole situation. And the movie was kind of an antithesis of the show, like it was sort of parroting their themes. They had Jack Nicholson, of all people, work on the soundtrack album. Nesmith actually said the soundtrack was pretty good, uh, but then the band members just started quitting the band and as I say, the band was officially finished in 1970. And although the shows continued to run and there were various reunions, in a way, it was like a band that just couldn't stop. Like that train just kept on going. I think Jack Nicholson also was a producer of the show. I think he was mm-hmm. one of the ones in the in the beginning stages getting them to do the to do the movie itself because his name was attached to it. So that they said, Oh, that well, yeah, if Jack Nicholson's involved, of course we'll be part of it. There's a great movie out there that kind of documents a lot of their story a little bit. And it's um, it really shows a lot of that kind of history of them sitting around kind of like just throwing out ideas and, and then writing down saying, oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, people will, will laugh at that. But, you know, they weren't writers. They weren't comedy writers. They right. were actors and musicians. And and if you've ever seen the movie Head, it's um a bit disjointed. <laughs> <laughs> You're so polite. <laughs> I mean, they were trying hard to hold true to the monkey spirit a bit, but also make it more adult, maybe, or more yeah. or more intelligent type thing. It wasn't like slapstick humor. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, the, we'll, we'll, we'll try to explain war and peace to them type thing and and how how peace should come to the to the planet and all that. I mean, but they didn't really achieve any of that stuff. It was just kind of like weird bits and pieces of stuff that <laughs> you just shake your head going, what's happening now? are you doing? Oh, that's funny. So I didn't have a TV growing up, so I didn't as regularly see the monkeys, but my 
I had a girlfriend and I would sometimes go to her house after school and she liked the monkeys. And so I did see some of their shows. I thought they were all pretty cute, but even at the time, you know, I was certainly aware that they weren't the Beatles, right? I, did you see them, Bill? Oh, oh the shows? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm the oldest in my family. So really, even t- down to my youngest sister, the monkeys were, were popular at our house because mm-hmm. They kind of appealed to most generations at that time. I mean, you could be older and like them and you could be younger and like them because the music was fun. And it, and it, it really appealed to a wide audience at the time. And really, the monkey, the, the, the TV show was, I kind of say it's kind of like Seinfeld in a way. It's really a TV show about nothing, but it has music in it once in a while. Uh-huh. I mean, if you try to, try to explain a plot line of any monkey's TV show, it's, it's kind of like, oh, they, they go have lunch. Oh, they're going to they, they go on a they go out for a ride and it's like on the way they they talk to somebody and then baby beats a girl and they do a song <laughs> uh-huh. so uh-huh. It's, it's it's kind of a show about nothing but and, and really the beatles movies were kind of that same way a little bit a little bit yeah in the early it's like a hard day's night really yeah there wasn't like a huge storyline no it, it was about a way to way to play the music mm-hmm. yeah it's funny to think of I, I was not aware that the monkeys were sort of supposed to be an American answer to the Beatles. And that actually kind of blows my mind a little bit because, you know, we, we always have this thing about, oh, the Americans always have to remake whatever, you know, the the really good Swedish TV show or some British series or some really good French movie. You know, there's always the American remake with American dialogue and American actors and, you know, the follow on, oh, it's never as good as the original, blah, blah, blah. But it it is a little perplexing to me that there was any idea that the monkeys would be some sort of American answer to the Beatles. I mean, they're just really different. And the monkeys music, you know, a lot of it was classified as bubblegum music. And it it was, I guess I think of it as being really targeted at a younger audience than the Beatles. And it was so accessible, right? It's just fun. It's just like, it's almost like kindergarten songs. I mean, it's not quite that, but it it was really fun, right? And people love that show. I go around now and ask people, you know, do you remember the monkeys? And almost always the answer I get is, hey, hey, where are the monkeys? I mean, <laughs> people loved it, right? And at that time, I think they needed something that was more, you know, less cerebral and more just mm-hmm. mindless because there was so much going on back then with wars and and people were just kind of learning about how bad things can be out there with media and stuff. I mean, it was a whole new way of looking at things. And the monkeys just kind of brought back just the silliness and things mm-hmm. of just it, just be entertained for a half hour mm-hmm. and not have to worry about things. Yeah, as I see all this outpouring now after Michael Nesmith has passed away, I I do sometimes think it's almost like the fans loved the monkeys more than the monkeys did. (laughs) (laughs) There was a quote on one of the uh, videos of one of their songs where someone wrote, you know, it's a good song when it makes you feel nostalgic for a time you weren't alive for. I thought, oh, yeah. There's some, I mean, and that gets into this idea about why it was so appealing, right? Yeah, I mean, even though Don Kirshner took control, 
I think he had he really contributed a lot to the success of the monkeys for the for the music that he put out because it's all very catchy stuff. Really uh-huh. really really fun and oh by the way, the name of that movie was Daydream Believers, the Monkey Story. So ah, okay. really if anybody wants to check it out, it really is a great movie and I think you'll learn a lot and you'll really enjoy it. So Michael Nesmith went on to do a bunch of other things, but let's back up for a second. He was born in 1942 in Houston. He was an only child and his parents divorced when he was four. Yikes. So then his mother moved him to Dallas to be closer to family. Although he wrote in his memoir that they they weren't estranged, but he said they weren't what he would call, quote, good company. Something about her being a Christian scientist and them being more Southern Christian. So that was kind of an issue. He said he felt the divide more than she did and that his pursuit of the arts, his interest in music was seen as very outlandish by them. And he said, you you could know Beethoven, but God forbid if you were Beethoven. (laughs) (laughs) His mother worked at clerical jobs until she invented liquid paper in 1955. And he actually attributes her creation of that product in part to her training as a graphic artist. But she grew the Liquid Paper Corporation into a huge company which she sold to Gillette in 1979 for $48 million. And she died shortly thereafter at the age of 56. She died pretty young. And Michael was 38 when he inherited uh, that money from her, which he then began to pour into music videos. He was not a conventionally educated person. He dropped out of high school to enlist in the Air Force. Uh, But he eventually got his GED and was honorably discharged at age 20 in 1962. His mother got him a guitar and he enrolled at San Antonio College and was kind of fooling around with music, playing in some working bands and playing solo. And then he moved to L.A. where he was uh, playing and writing songs. He got a few published, a few under the name of Michael Blessing, of all things, And then he auditioned for the monkeys and the rest is history. I should mention he met his first wife at San Antonio College and she was pregnant when they moved to LA, which he talks about in his memoir, Infinite Tuesday, and especially how that was problematic for his religious relatives. And in his words, they quote, fled to California. So he and Phyllis Barber, ended up having three kids, one in 1965, one in 1968, and one in 1970. So all this time that he's kind of banging around and having existential crisis with the monkeys, he's actually a working married man, which, you know, probably also contributed a bit to some of this uncomfortableness or internal conflicts during the show. Another interesting factoid that he talks about in his memoir is that he was kind of mimicking Bob Dylan when he went out to L.A., not by playing his songs because he said he couldn't, but that he was playing folk songs that were popular that he could sing and play on the guitar and that would get him jobs and that also he could use his Texas drawl on 
But he very vividly remembered when he and Phyllis were watching the Ed Sullivan show in 1964 when the Beatles came on and how it completely changed his life. So he set aside folk music for good then. He has no recollection of seeing the rest of that show when uh, Davy Jones was on doing one of his numbers from Oliver is the artful Dodger who would you know, become his future monkey co-star. So that was kind of funny that he doesn't remember him at all. So overwhelmed by the Beatles, I guess. I think that Beatles performance probably influenced so many people over the years. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. It's, it's like, and, and really, if you, if you see it for the first time back then, yeah, you probably wouldn't remember Davy Jones doing the Artful Dodger. <laughs> right. Because you'd just be going, wow, did you see what I saw? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's really amazing how many musicians talk about seeing that show. It's really incredible. Yeah, the Beatles and also Elvis Presley. Both, both those mm. people on the Ed Sullivan show really changed the whole music industry in a way because they influenced people so much. So after Michael Nesmith left the Monkees, he enrolled part-time at UCLA, where he studied American history and music history. So just a comment to our audience that it's never too late to keep learning. He put together a band called First National Band, ha, 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 uh, which is now considered a pioneer in the country rock genre. They had a little bit of success with a single called Joanne which featured a pedal steel player, Orville Red Rhodes, which actually reached number one in New Zealand. And he put together a few more bands and did more writing and producing. He had a label of his own briefly called Countryside through Electra Records. And after that folded, then he started his own multimedia company called Pacific Arts, which started putting out video records. Uh, he had a bit of a hit in 1977 with Rio and then the single Cruisin' about Lucy and Ramona and Sunset Sam, uh, which also was really big in New Zealand. And I have to do an aside here about Cruisin' and Lucy and Ramona. So in the 70s, I was working at a public library at a circulation desk that was located quite close to this lobby where they had a little video cassette player and the AV librarians used to come out and pop these cassettes in to entertain people that were hanging out in the lobby. And this uh, cruising was one of the videos that used to play a lot. So I have that song like permanently <laughs> engraved on my brain. <laughs> I still like that song. Um, even all those hundreds of times that I probably heard it. And I played it yesterday for a group of people who are at my house. And yeah, there was kind of a mixed reaction to it. I just think it's a hoot, but but yeah, that some people were like, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes it's just, you have to be there for the, the magic to happen. Yeah, because, you know, I heard it back in a time when it was quite contemporary. So seeing it now, of course, it'll seem more dated now. So by the 1980s, Michael was producing other people's music. So he did the music video for Lionel Richie's single All Night Long and for Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel. He had a short-lived series called Michael Nesmith in Television Parts, which 
this is funny to me, brought a bunch of, at the time, unknown comedians onto the screen, names such as Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Gary Shandling, Arsenio Hall, and Whoopi Goldberg. It's just amazing all the things that Michael Nesmith was involved with that just became huge after he, you know, kind of was peripherally involved with them. I think one of the things that because he was so involved with all these different things, I think Mickey Dolan's mentioned in one of his goodbyes to him that that Mike was the um, really the leader of the monkeys unofficially, but he he was the one that they all looked up to. He was so busy doing all these other other things. That's why he didn't tour with the monkeys for the first couple of tours because he was just he was just too busy. It wasn't like he wanted us to forget about it. I think he was just too busy in order to take that time to. He was running a business. He had hundreds of people to, to, to worry about and to go out and tour. I think he was a hands-on type guy and he couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a very busy person. He was just kind of around on a, a lot of things. It, it was just funny, all these asides you come across. Like his company, the Pacific Arts Company, got into a fight with PBS over the rights for Ken Burns' The Civil War, <laughs> of all things, right? And he ended up being awarded $49 million by a jury, which prompted his quote. It's like finding your grandmother stealing your stereo. You're happy to get your stereo back, but it's sad to find out your grandmother is a thief. <laughs> <laughs> and PBS ended up appealing. And so they settled out of court. He was also executive producer for Repo Man, the movie, and Tape Heads, and another another movie called Time Rider. Did you see Repo Man, Bill? I, I did, and and it was really a pretty good movie. It was different, though. It was picked a lot of interesting people to be in it, and mm-hmm. the soundtrack was really good. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was fairly successful. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it Very. I think it became a cult classic in a way. And oh yeah. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I, it's super fun. And I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't watched it. It was written and directed by Alex Cox, who teamed up with some fellow graduates from the UCLA Film School, um, including, if I get this straight here, my brother's girlfriend's sister. So that's my brush with fame as she was in Repo Man. And it starred Emilio Estevez. And I just looked at a little bit here recently. He looks like he's about 14 years old in that movie. (laughs) And Harry Dean Stanton is in it also. And he looks really young. It's really funny to see them. So it it involves uh, Emilio. I think his character's name is Otto, who gets kind of roped into becoming a repo man, a guy who repossesses cars if they're not paid for. If somebody doesn't keep up their payments on the car, then he goes and takes it back. And there's a Chevy Malibu who stars in it and aliens. And then it also has this, you know, driving, really excellent uh, soundtrack, very progressive for its time. Oh, and the tagline for the movie is Repo Man. It's not just a job. It's an adventure. (laughs) Anyway, it's super fun. I think it's held up really well. And it was just a surprising success commercially and critically. It's considered one of the best movies of 1984. Entertainment Weekly ranked it seventh in their list of top 50 cult films. 
And Neil Gaiman reviewed it for Imagine Magazine. He must have been a teenager at the time, too. He said it was a big success and it wasn't hard to see why. He says, a lobotomized nuclear scientist is driving around Los Angeles in a car with something in the boot. (laughs) That's his his review of it. (laughs) And Tape Heads is also really fun and really goofy. Did you see that? I might have, but I don't remember don't much about it at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's got John Cusack and it and Tim Robbins, and they play uh, best friends who lose their jobs as security guards, and they start a a fancy imagine this a music video production company <laughs> called Video Aces, and they run into there's a little bit of Blues Brothers in this. They run into their childhood heroes, a soul duo called Swanky Modes, and they come up with this idea to hijack a Menudo concert, this uh, Latin American boy band uh, at the time, and broadcast the Swanky Modes instead right uh, across the country to give them this exposure. It had a ton of just oddball people in it. Uh, actually, Michael Nesmith shows up in it as a bottled water delivery guy. I have no <laughs> idea why. Courtney Love is in it. Ted Nugent. Weird Al Yankovic is in it. A singer from the Dead Kennedys who plays an FBI agent. And then, um, oh, yeah, this totally weird piece of trivia here. The soundtrack had a song called Repave America by Tim Robbins, right, who's starring in the movie. He's credited on the soundtrack as Bob Roberts four years. Hmm. And this is four years before the Bob Roberts film comes out. So do, 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 do. Oh. Yeah, weird. And then Michael Nesmith also wrote the screenplay and did the music for the 1982 movie Time Rider, The Adventure of Lyle Swan. Lyle Swan is a cross-country dirt bike racer. And I guess he stumbles into a time travel experiment and gets yanked back to 1877, where some bad guys then try to steal his bike and he encounters a beautiful woman who hides him. And then some U.S. Marshals get involved and hijinks ensue. (laughs) Michael shows up in this film as a race official. I can't comment on the uh, film's merits it sounds like it might not be to everyone's tastes. Uh, so Vincent Canby, who's, you know, a little bit of the stuffy film critic from the New York Times said, at the point at which I walked out about 55 minutes into the film, there hadn't been a single characterization, situation, line of dialogue, camera angle, or joke to indicate that anyone connected with Time Rider had the remotest idea of what he was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Dear. <laughs> but you know, sometimes it's just not to everyone's taste, but but you might find it and look at it and really enjoy it. You just never know. Just like head. Right, just like head. <laughs> exactly. It might have a very small select audience. Uh, I have to mention that Michael teamed up with PJ O'Rourke to ride his car which was aptly named Time Rider in the Baja 1000, which O'Rourke chronicled in his book, Driving Like Crazy. 
Yeah. It's these rabbit holes you can go down with oh, yeah. Michael Nesbeth is crazy. And then somewhere in there, he also wrote a couple of novels. <laughs> he was married three times and had four kids. And his third marriage ended in divorce in 2011. His son, his oldest son, Christian Nesmith, is a musician in his own right. He's also played with a bunch of people, including being the lead guitarist on Air Supply. He's traveled with the Monkees Reunion Tours, and then also with his brother Jonathan, uh, made a new lineup of the First National Band. So really cool to see Michael's legacy through his son's. So after Michael's divorce from his third marriage, then he started joining some of the Monkees reunion tours and doing some solo touring also. In 1918, he teamed up with Mickey Dolenz to play music under the Monkees banner. And the, that tour was cut short when Michael experienced what everybody keeps putting in quotes, a minor health issue, which later turned out to necessitate a quadruple bypass heart surgery. So I'm not quite sure why we're calling this a minor heart issue. And then they regrouped in 2019 and continued that tour. And then he played with first national band Redux. And, you know, as I say, he was still playing as recently in 2021 until he fell ill and died of heart failure just last Friday. I was lucky to see them uh, making Mickey show in Riverside. It was really fun to see them playing together, but it was also kind of sad because you could tell that Mike was in, I don't want to say bad health, but not as exuberant and as playful as he would normally be. I think he was kind of more sit in a chair and, and sing along type thing. And his voice was still good, but it was still kind of sad not to see the, the guitar playing monkey that you always used to see. Mm-hmm. But that record is pretty is pretty good too. The Mike and Mickey show. It's a live con- live show that's out there on CD and vinyl, I believe. So, oh okay. If you want, if you want to hear what it sounded like, it, you can still pick that up or download it on wherever you download your your media. Hmm. Oh, that's good to know. Okay, so he wrote this memoir called Infinite Tuesday, and it actually has an accompanying soundtrack, which is uh, funny. And it came out in 2017, and it's been pretty roundly criticized on Amazon, but it seems to me as I was reading that it's pretty typical of Michael's work. I mean, it's fairly casual. It's not profound. And really, maybe it was done more for his own pleasure than for ours. You know, he kind of strikes me as a person who's interested in his own thoughts, and he's not easily swayed by commercial interests, which, you know, given his history with the monkeys, I think, you know, that's probably a reasonable takeaway for him to have had from that experience. And so I, I do think of him as being kind of an affable person, but fairly aloof. The book is sort of stream of consciousness and it is, it's got some peculiarities. It's got some very fancy vocabulary in it, almost like he's sort of playing around with words, which I, I don't know, that seems okay to me, but some of the reviewers weren't enamored with that. And mostly it seemed like a lot of them were anticipating that he was going to dish about the monkeys. And he really doesn't talk about the monkeys very much at all. I don't think he was that interested in talking about that in the book. 
I don't know if any of them really had much of a monkey type storybook out there at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think maybe they had a brotherhood of just this, whatever we we happened with us. That's our own business. That's what it kind of seems like. Mm-hmm. Given the state of the world, that might be smart. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I do think Michael Nesmith did a lot on his own terms and people maybe had a different expectation of him. There were a couple of stories in the memoir that I thought were interesting. He talks about his friendship with Douglas Adams, the author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He was also quite good friends with uh, Timothy Leary, by the way. (laughs) So anyway, so one night Adams is telling this story about how affected he was at a young age by a cartoon that he saw by Paul Crum. And Michael gets really interested in this story because he too was affected at a young age, or at least you know, recognition of his kind of sense of humor by a cartoon by Paul Crum. And sure enough, it turns out that it was the same cartoon. And so in this cartoon, it shows two hippos who are standing in the middle of a river in the middle of nowhere, right? With nothing, nothing, nothing around them, just nature as far as you can see. And one of them says to the other, I keep thinking it's Tuesday. (laughs) 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 And so Michael describes this as being the, quote, dead reckon for him and for Adams. It's kind of a weird use of the term. So dead reckoning is the calculation of your own location by a previous location and then figuring out like which direction you were going and how fast before that. And that's how you figure out where you are. So it's kind of strange to use this term. He might mean that it was kind of an orientation or sort of a signpost for the kind of humor that was going to appeal to him and to Adams. And Michael writes really fondly in his memoir about this type of connection. Uh, He comments about how delightful and surprising they are. And he quotes Tom Stoppard's definition of laughter uh, as being the sound of comprehension, which I thought was really cool. So here's a sample from the memoir where he's talking about the generation gap that opened up after the Beatles, whether it was because of the music or the hair or the drugs or the irreverence. And so he writes, certainly these forces all came together to create the monkeys. The paradox was that in the very middle of innovation and invention, the monkeys were a transparent concoction, a copy carefully attached to the innovators of the time, only by the homage of imitation, unoriginal by every account. There was no effort to hide this artificiality because it was a feature, not a fault. It was meant to function as a parade flag, not the flag itself. The surprise came when something so obviously created from whole cloth became an existential fact, a reality unto itself, and then created a venomous and righteous backlash that tore the flag away from the parade marshal and set it on fire. The creators of the monkeys may have thought they were creating a simple television property, a pay-in to the times, but what they were actually producing was Pinocchio. The show in all its parts and characters would come to life 
and beginning to breathe and move and sing and play and write and think on their own. What had started as a copy of the 1960s became a fact of the 1960s. What had started as fanciful effect became causal fact. Woo! Deep. (laughs) (laughs) I think he's thought a lot about the monkeys. Yeah. There is also an interview on YouTube where he talks about the problems with the monkeys and how they began to kind of push up against the concept of the monkeys. Like what defines this band, you know, the sort of the why of the band. And he said, you know, none of that work was ever done with the monkeys. And he he talks in that interview about how moved he was by the Beatles and how even a song like I Want to Hold Your Hand initially might sound kind of silly, but if you listen to it a little more carefully, it's not silly at all. And he said, you know, when you're doing music, you really have to have this spiritual connection to the music. So you can see how all these things, yeah, how cerebral he was (laughs) about this experience about having been in this TV sitcom about a rock and roll band. It's funny. Well, I, b- I believe him and the Beatles, or the, the monkeys and the Beatles, actually had some respect for each other. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, when they went to London at one point, the the Beatles had a um had a party for the monkeys mm-hmm. with a bunch of people, and they were got to hang out with them, and and they, they became some of them became good friends with them. like Mickey would have them over to his house, and when they came to L.A. and I mean, it became a, a friendship as opposed to a rivalry. I mean, they, they, they really yes. weren't competing against each other. They were just happy that they both found some success. Mm-hmm. Of course, the monkeys, I mean, the Beatles had <laughs> success for a lot longer, but, um, but the monkeys, I mean, for what they were doing, they did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Oh, it seems like everybody behaved in a very adult way, right? Very gracious to each other and very appreciative of each other's music. So, lovely. And, and I think helpful and and trying to help them with insights and different things that they may have been struggling with, because the Beatles have struggled with all that stuff themselves earlier. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe the monkeys might have been having some of their conflicts, and they were, you know, sharing things with the monkeys and trying to figure things out themselves. All those bands probably faced their existential dread at one point or another. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael writes about his muse in Infinite Tuesday. And how he discovered his attraction to music was so real and so natural and so dependable. And so he named that force his, quote, uncompromising muse. And he went on to say, I did not know how much pain it would cause or just how toxic it could be to other people. I did not know it would surround me with a lifelong loneliness and render me blind in certain directions of thought. And he goes on to talk about the problems with music and the muse and ends by saying that if he had looked closer, he might have seen that this muse was not one of the nine of Greek mythology or even unique to me. This muse was wearing a clown wig and had a red rubber ball on the end of her nose. Hmm. So you can tell by now that Michael was a pretty serious guy, uh, but he did seem to be eternally a monkey, right? If not in his own eyes, in the eyes of others. He was on the Letterman show and he was talking about being a star 
and being interviewed and talking to a reporter about, you know, he said just anything that comes up, war, politics, or, you know, theoretical physics or whatever. And then he says, then the article will come out and the headline is Nesmith's the dog is named Spot. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you just feel for these people. And so Letterman says to him, that must be very frustrating. And Nesmith said immediately, not at all. You know, just really gracious. I was very impressed by that. Yeah, he was quick. Yeah, very quick, very tolerant of being a star, you know, despite the questions that it raised for him. So I didn't know very much about Michael Nesmith. I mean, I'd seen a few of the monkey shows, but that was it. But I did get a CD. It was the first of his work that was released on CD in 1989. And it was called The Newer Stuff. And it had old songs and then eight new songs. And it had Rio and Cruisin. And then there were two songs, which I really love, but they turn out not to be written by Michael Nesmith, but by uh, Bill Martin, uh, El Dorado to the Moon, which is so cool, super sweet song. And then Chow Mein and Bowling, which is appropriate (laughs) for you and me. Yeah, yeah, there are a couple of uh, verses here. I'll read you from Chow Mein and Bowling. So Michael sang this, but it was actually written by Bill Martin. Chow Mein and Bowling, Twinkies and Champagne, Moon over McDonald's, Frozen Pizza in the Rain, Dancing in the Dump Truck, Dining with the Dog, (laughs) Laughing in the Bathtub with a Ducky and a Frog. It's really cool. Yeah, that sounds really like this sweet. kind of humor or, 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 or style, I would think. Yeah, uh-huh, exactly. And then there's another one that's really pretty. It's called I'll Remember You. And it has a it has a really throwback vibe to it. Uh, so he, he tar- initially starts out talking about Fred Astaire and Ginger. And then he has this. John, my friend, and the band you sang. You wrote the songs that helped to ease the pain. Where'd you think up all those hook lines that so captured those times? Ah, John, my friend, you were the best by far. Fred and Ginger, Paul, George, and Ringo, too. Those days are gone, but I'll remember you. And so everything you did is still alive today. And though I'm late, there's something I must say. Thank you for the times you gave me. Thank you for the tears you saved me. Please take this song as my thanks to you. Yes, that's very nice. One of the commenters on one of the videos said uh, about Michael Nesmith, what a genius in his own warped way. (laughs) That was pretty good. And then there was a, a quote in his obituary and variety, which I thought was interesting. Um, Monkeys devotees who saw the first few shows on the tour reported some frailty, and yet he seemed to be getting a booster shot night after night, well before the tour ended in triumph at LA's Greek just three and a half weeks ago. If anything involving a death could be said to have had something like a fairy tale ending, this might've been it. Hmm. And it was sad. It's sad, but you know, when I look at the span of his life, there is something like a fairy tale quality to it, right? Just some of the 
people he was involved with, sort of the magical moments, the things that he pioneered. And yeah, his, his life really was a very interesting life. I, I think he was a really hands-on type guy when it came to, if he wanted to be anyway. I think that's what the problem with the monkeys was. He couldn't get be part of it as much as he wanted to in the in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But with his businesses and things like that, I mean, I've been reading things here and there, and a lot of people have been doing tribute songs to him that have that were his songs. Like, um, I think one of the most popular was some of Shelley's Blues. I must have seen three or four different people doing that on the internet already. Oh, really? Interesting. There's a guy named Ben Vaughn who who's a yeah. songwriter, and mm-hmm. he was he was talking about how he had a brush with Michael Nesmith and one of his early bands. He sent Mike Nesmith a tape, uh-huh. uh, like a demo tape of of what he was doing, and Mike Nesmith actually called him up, and he thought he was he thought it was like a lot of things that it wasn't Michael Nesmith calling him. It was uh-huh. just one of his friends, and Michael Nesmith, you don't you don't believe it's me, do you? And he goes, uh-huh. No, I don't. <laughs> but, but but he found out it really was, and uh-huh. Michael Nesmith said he liked his stuff and he wanted to hear some more of his stuff, and unfortunately that um Ben change bands and different things happen so it wasn't the same band later on but um but michael nesmith actually listens to the stuff he gets and actually was mm-hmm. contacting people i mean he this is before anyone knew who ben von was yeah mm-hmm. today even some people still don't know but but he's had a pretty long career himself and mm-hmm. very have, talented yeah very talented to have somebody um just like, like michael nesmith say yeah listen to it i like it mm-hmm. so that's really inspiring for a lot of just singer songwriters themselves yeah, sure. I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, Michael Nesmith might be a bit of an aloof character, but my sense is that he was still quite a humble person. You know, he did have that self-deprecating dry wit, but also he seems like, you know, being genuine, being authentic was really important to him. He writes about that quite a bit in Infinite Tuesday about finding himself. I think if you have self-deprecating humor, you probably are pretty humble in the long run mm. because you're not taking yourself to be the best of the best. You're taking yourself as somebody who's... T- make, if you can poke fun of yourself, you're, you're probably pretty humble. Mm-hmm. Well, he's had such an interesting life at such an interesting moment. I, I'm glad that we were able to do this podcast and I hope more people sort of know about him so he's not just the cap wearing monkey but that they know more about all the things he was involved with as, as far as songs go i mean we should mention a few of his big songs these ones that are my favorites for me anyway and you should mention a few of yours but i've always had as i mentioned before in the podcast i'm more of a melody person and the song like joanne mm-hmm. um, papa jeans blues there's different drama course there's just so many songs that have just pretty melodies and mm-hmm there's stories where he went to the producers and during the monkey's time and said, I want to play you a song. And they say, well, they, he played a different drum. It's like, yeah, I don't see that. We don't see the monkeys doing that one. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And of course, then he gave to Linda Ronstadt who shot her to fame right away yeah. and made lots of uh, money for somebody. Hopefully Michael got some of that. Mm-hmm. And as far as different versions, I mean, in 2013, he recorded a live album from a tour he was doing called, Movies of the Mind. Oh, yeah. I saw a reference to that. I don't know anything about that. And it's a really beautiful, a lot of different versions of some of his songs. And he does different drum on there that's kind of like a, it sounds like you, you're sitting in a cafe in France. Oh, interesting. And, and, and the way it's performed, and it's just 
a beautiful version. And if people like that song, you should check out that version. Okay. There, there's a website that Michael has called the Video Ranch website. Mm-hmm. And Video Ranch is a place where it was like a early internet grouping type thing where you could actually go into the ranch itself as a character and watch concerts of people in character. I mean, as like kind of like animation, but kind of your own own way of doing it, his own way of doing like a Sims type thing almost. Oh. And you could go into that and you could watch concerts by people and he would have a lot of different people perform. And that's, it's still active. I'm not sure to what effect, but if you go to Video Ranch, the Michael Nesmith website, there's a lot of great CDs there you can get that may be harder to find in other places. You can download stuff, a lot of downloads of stuff that you wouldn't find anywhere else. So he really put his stuff out there for people to get if they wanted it. You can, you can even, even get one of his hats, probably not his hat, right. but, uh-huh. but a hat. <laughs> so right. for, people, for people looking for his stuff, that's definitely a, a place to look for vinyl or, or CDs and even, even DVDs and things like that. There's, it has a lot of his stuff on there and it's really a, a good resource for any Michael Nesmith fan that hasn't been there. That whole concept makes me wonder if we're going to see more of that, right? You know, in so many cases, he was sort of ahead of his time. I wonder if we're going to see I, more I think, of I, I think that. it came out maybe 10 years too early. I think, um, right? <laughs> it, but, but it might have inspired other things. I mean, it could have been, to me, it could have inspired things like The Sims or things like that, where people mm-hmm. got to be characters inside another game. Or even mm-hmm. like, is it World of Warcraft, I think, where people are characters in the game. So there's a lot of things where you can be the character in a video game and and he made it to be more of a positive thing as opposed to going off and becoming the winner type thing with more of a meeting people, talking to people, listening to music. It's kind of an interesting concept. Those connections like he was talking yeah. about, right? To wrap it up, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm of course, saddened by his passing and wish that he had lived a little longer. I was a little bit disappointed that he did pass away so soon after having that quadruple bypass surgery, because often that kind of surgery, you know, will give you another 10 years or, or longer. So yeah, it's unfortunate that that didn't happen for him, but I sure appreciate what he brought us while he was here. We're very fortunate to have so much of his work at our fingertips. Yeah. He definitely left his mark and it'll be with us for a long time. Yeah. That's the beauty of having a legacy. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be together again soon. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.